Still cracking Christmas. What's the most expensive box of Christmas crackers you have seen this year? Uh, £85 for six is the most expensive I've seen. And it's still a tacky key ring and a little and a <laughs> suckers or what? Thinking about uh, the manger today, it comes right in the midst of that passage that we had last week about the shepherds, but we're not going to talk uh, about the shepherds, but a focus on this verse that's right in the middle, Luke 2 and verse 12, here it is on the screen, this will be a sign to you, you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The sign to the shepherds that they've discovered the saviour that is to be born for them, you will remember from last week, The sign will be, firstly, that it'll be wrapped in cloths, and then secondly, that it'll be lying in a manger. So we begin with something that is totally ordinary. There is nothing unusual about a baby being wrapped in cloths or swaddling bands, as the old translations uh, render it. That's what every parent did, rich or poor. By itself, it was like saying to the shepherds, you'll know it's Jesus, he'll be wearing a baby grow. But there is, though, something quite uh, breathtaking in its ordinariness that we should not miss. You will find him just like any other baby, wrapped up in cloths. God had become ordinary. Heaven had opened up and placed her most precious gift in a first century jumpsuit. God in a baby grow, the omnipotent, now breakable, fragile, vulnerable, pierceable. He who was larger than the universe, now constrained within these cloths, the world that was made by his word, now trapped in swaddling bands, and totally dependent on a young teenage girl. God with eyebrows, and God with elbows, God who learnt to crawl and then to walk. Children played with him in the streets. Was he good at football and rubbish at singing? Who knows? Did he like to run or prefer to write? Did the girl next door have a crush on him? You'll find him in strips of cloth, an ordinary kid, just like anybody else. God, just like you. And just like me. And for 33 years, he would feel everything that we feel. He felt weary and weak. His feelings got hurt. His feet got tired. Sometimes his head ached too. The ordinariness is staggering, really, when you think about it. The all-powerful, now utterly powerless. The greatest, now the least. The biggest becomes small. The strips of cloth. A good reminder about what God was doing, but useless in helping the shepherds find their way. And so this second phrase singles out the destination for the shepherds. Not just in strips of cloth, but you'll find him lying in a manger. From something ordinary now to something quite extraordinary. Who would put their baby in an animal's feeding trough? They will know they have found him because he'll be in that manger. Who on earth would do that? Mary and Joseph must have been desperately disappointed, don't you think? 
They must have been gutted that the baby they had prayed over and longed for, this baby growing in Mary's womb, that for nine months they had loved and understood that not just was this their precious child, in some incredibly miraculous way, this was God's gift to the earth. How precious can that be? A manger. What parent would have planned it, would have dreamt about it like that? Not this. Not this. Surely not this. Someone else's stable. But wasn't it God's story? Wasn't it God who was doing the planning and the organising? Wasn't it God that's been getting things ready? In fact, as we get to know our Bibles, we understand that God himself has been getting ready for this moment for centuries, if not since eternity itself. So was God then taken by surprise by the date that this baby should arrive? Was God caught off guard? Did the baby come early? Was God taken aback by the busyness in Bethlehem? Was God confident that an ensuite would have been easy to find? No. The manger was as it was meant to be. Tucked away in the back streets, that was it. That was the plan. And if that's the case, then the manger is not simply a sign for the shepherds to find him. It's a sign for us to understand him, surely. What does it mean? What does the manger point to? What is it a sign of? The God who roared. The God who could order armies and empires about like pawns on a chessboard chose the manger, chose the swaddling cloths and two teenage peasants for mum and for dad. Must be a sign, but what does it point to? Well, maybe there are lots of things, just two things, maybe three this morning. First thing, God isn't bothered about image. God isn't bothered about image. If it was our son coming to earth, everything would have to be right, wouldn't it? What parent doesn't want everything to be perfect for their firstborn? It would need to be the best royal palace, the most successful royal family, surely, in the most influential, the most educated city on earth. At least people might begin to recognise who he was if he looked the part. We're obsessed with image though, aren't we? It's got to look right. We're more bothered about it looking right than it being right. We're more bothered about how people see us than how we really are. Most of the time it's our human nature to go to more lengths to prevent other people finding out something that's bad about us than actually resolving that which is bad within us. And there are many examples all over the place of the power of image in our lives. We're so bothered by what others think that it dominates and drives our decisions and our choices. It's not that I have clothes, but it is what kind of clothes I have. And it's not that I have a car, but what kind of car. And it's not that I have a mobile phone, but what kind of mobile phone. And if those things don't bite you, then something else will. What kind of kitchen is it? What kind of bathroom is it? What's the postcode where you live? Whether your children went to university, where you go on holiday? What gigabyte is your iPod? Do you have an iPod? Do you care whether you have an iPod? 
Our culture says that these things say something about us. And we've bought into that almost hook, line, and sinker. And we kid ourselves if we are above all of this stuff. Because none of us are. And we've all conformed to image today because of what you are wearing. There's no one here who's wearing something outrageous. We've all conformed this morning. That's the power of image in our lives. It's not just a modern thing, is it? This last year we were given a family membership of the um, National Trust. And just like anything, uh, the more you use it, the more you save. So in October, when we were in Derbyshire, we thought that we would enter the competition for going to the most National Trust properties you possibly can in one single week. The kids were thrilled. <laughs> what are we doing today? National Trust property. What's there, Dunno? Who lived there, Dunno? What will we see, Dunno? Why are we going? We are going because this card means we can save £35 when we get there. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Not really. Well, yes, a little bit. So from time to time, we battle our way past the coachloads of senior citizens to get into one of these National Trust properties. And to be fair, some of them are magnificent. And I didn't really appreciate how many magnificent places there are across our green and pleasant land where Jesus didn't walk, just in case you thought he did from that hymn. And uh, without exception, in the most magnificent properties, there is always a driveway into the grounds towards the building that has been carefully designed. So as you drive in, there is always a moment when you turn the corner, it's usually a high vantage point, when for the first time you can see the enormous house ahead of you and the splendid grounds surrounding it. They designed it that way and they hoped and they longed that when every person got to that point, they would look at this amazingly English thing and go, wow. Look at that house. And it's surely deliberate. The wow factor. Why is it there? So that as you go wow, you begin to think to yourself, the people that live in that house, they must be special and wealthy and influential and important and so on. Often the opposite is quite true, isn't it? The guy at Ickworth, for example, and Lord Bath and all that jazz... It's another story, perhaps another sermon. But the wow, that moment, that image is for you to say, this is an incredible place. The people that live in here must be really something. Once inside these houses, you can go from room to room. And each room, there is usually in the corner a National Trust volunteer sleeping or playing Sudoku. And uh, you can wake them up and say to them, what on earth happened in here? And uh, if they're good, they'll have something to say. If they're not so good, they'll thumbage around for their bit of paper. And their... But how many times, I've been amazed how many times they say, well, not much, really. You're in this magnificently splendid room. And you go, not much. So then I say, why on earth did they build it then? Because they wanted to impress the people that came. And that's what they say, house after house. They built it to impress. They built it to create an image. They built it to show that they are somebody. 
in this world where that matters to us so much. Sometimes whole wings of houses are built and no one has ever occupied it. And actually, no one was ever intended to occupy it. It was just to show. We know it's outrageous, don't we? But we know in our honesty that that same spirit lurks in all of us. Just for show. Just for show. And yet here we read the sign of God's coming was that they laid him in a manger. Why was God able to show up without the image and without the pretense and without the spin? Maybe because he had nothing to prove. We, on the other hand, are always trying to prove ourselves, aren't we? Sometimes to others, sometimes just to ourselves. We're driven by this need to prove that we're okay. We're worth something, that we matter. And so we create an image for ourselves and for others to convince them and sometimes us that we are really okay. And these images can be so powerful. Sometimes people can be dying inside. How are you? I'm fine. And the cheesy Christian grin. Isn't it grand to be a Christian? Isn't it grand? Isn't it grand? You're all too young. We used to sing that stuff. I've got to show everybody I'm okay. I've got to prove that I'm all right. So we create an image, an aura that we want others to believe and that we want to buy in to ourselves. Listen, there's nothing to prove. There's nothing, nothing to prove. There is no success on earth that makes you more of a person than the person sitting next to you. And there is no failure on this planet that makes you less of a person than the person sitting next to you. We're all the same. We're all broken, fallen, damaged, marred, wounded humanity. Such beauty in us. Such brokenness in us too. We all stand in total need of God's mercy, of God's forgiveness, of God's new life. And we're all loved exactly the same by the God who made us. We really do have nothing to prove. Maybe that's why God chose the manger. A place where there was nothing at all to prove. Maybe because there was nothing to hide for God. Hey, we feel we've got loads to hide, don't we? Or is that just me? That's just me. I'm feeling lonely now. Hey, there's some stuff in me that I want to hide from you. Ever felt like that about me? Hello? Stuff we want to hide. You see, the real me, and this could be you, the real me is too stupid, too boring, too ugly, too grubby, too selfish. Wouldn't want you to see any of that. So we create this image. This image is out there of who I am. It helps keep distance between us. That means you're less likely to discover, because if you discovered it, you wouldn't like me anymore. 
But then because it's all out there, hey, I'm lonely, and that makes me fearful. And you're lonely, that makes you fearful too. And somehow the true life that God had for us just slips through our fingers as we paint this image out there somewhere all of the time. We hide behind the things we've gathered around us. A pastor went visiting one afternoon and he knocked on the door several times of one of his parishioners and no one answered. He could see they were in through the window because the TV was on. And uh, having knocked several times, he wrote on the card, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I will come in. Posted it through the door and left. On the Sunday, a woman came to the back of the church, handed him a card, Genesis 3.20. I heard thy voice and I was naked, so I hid myself. (laughs) Which seemed fair game to both the woman and the pastor at the end of the day. But that verse comes right after Adam and Eve have fallen out of, fallen from grace with God. And they feel ashamed. And they feel exposed. And they need to hide themselves. They never ever occurred to them to hide themselves before. But suddenly they want to they hide themselves away. It's gone terribly wrong. And friends, we've been hiding ourselves from God and from one another ever since. Jesus came to the manger because there was nothing to hide. He didn't need palaces and pomp even if he was a king. There was nothing to hide and that's the life he came to bring. You imagine living a life where there's nothing to hide. Deep within you is flowing streams of clear, pure, life-giving water. What a relief. What a freedom. What a release that there's nothing about me for you to discover anymore because God is sorting me out. Hallelujah. What a wonderful way to be. What a great way to live. Nothing to hide. That's why he came. Maybe that's why it was a manger, because at the end of the day, there's nothing to prove and there's nothing to hide. Secondly, the manger is a sign that God isn't bothered about wealth either. British shoppers were predicted to spend £9.58 billion on presents in the last week before Christmas in 1990, Sorry, in 2005. Around 1.1 million people will spend over £1,000 in the last week before Christmas. Men are more likely to leave their Christmas shopping to the last week. You didn't know that, did you? But they are. Each person takes an average of 15 hours to complete his or her Christmas shopping. And given that you spend 14 hours in queues at Argos, the rest of it's pretty straightforward, I tend to think. Listen to this, though. Ten billion pounds is the average amount borrowed across Britain to pay for Christmas presents. More than 8,000 tonnes of wrapping paper is used at Christmas, which the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs estimates is enough to wrap the whole island of Guernsey. Why does my taxpayers' money go on that kind of stuff? And each year, Christmas leaves more than 1.2 billion worth of unwanted presents. So if 10 billion is borrowed, say that's the only amount spent on presents, 1.2 billion is wasted, you're thinking, crumbs, most years, I'm way above average in the load of rubbish that I get. (laughs) You will spend 25% of your Christmas shopping time in a queue. What are you going to do with that time for the next two weeks? 
25% in a queue. You're going to get on the internet, I know. <laughs> What's it all about? All in celebration of the one who came into the world with nothing, lived with nothing, died with nothing, went back to heaven with nothing in material terms. Steal a phrase I used for a sermon series last year, it's money madness. And all that we see around us, this obsession with wealth of getting it and keeping it and who's got the most, TV competitions to offer the largest and grandest prize, who wants to be a millionaire? Everybody, apparently. At least almost everybody. Who watches this stuff, do you know? Sometimes you're up in the night with your children. And if you've got young children, sometimes you're up for a while. And you think, I'll stick on the telly. You've got Open University on BBC Two, so you can learn about the inside of Blue Whales or something. Or on ITV, you can win yourself a £1,000 every five minutes or something. I don't stay awake long enough to last the five minutes. But who's there at that time in the morning playing those games? We make it, we hoard it, we spend it, we'll lie, we'll cheat, we'll steal, we'll take risks, we'll even kill for it. We behave as if it's the cure for all our ills. If only I had a little bit more. If only I had quite a lot more, actually. But why? Can it buy love? No. Can it buy life? No. Can it buy peace? No. Can it make me content? No. Can it heal the pain inside? No. Can it get me right with God? No. Actually, can it do anything I really want for me? No. But we live as if it's the panacea for all our woes. Yet know in our hearts that it's nothing of the sort. We cling to it like it's all we've got whilst knowing it just can't buy what we really want. And when God placed his precious son in a family, he did so to a family that had almost nothing materially. I don't know what image you have of Mary and Joseph. He went on to make good in a carpenter's shop. That may well be the case. But when Jesus was born, they were way out on a limb. You say, how do I know? They were way out on a limb because six days after Jesus was born, they need to go to the temple. And then they need to sacrifice a lamb in thanksgiving for the gift of their child. It's like their dedication service. Mary and Joseph could not afford a lamb. So they could not do what the law required. But luckily for them, if lucky be a word, luckily for them, the law in the Old Testament made provision for people that didn't have two pennies to rub together. And it said, if you can't buy a lamb, then a couple of pigeons will do. Two a penny. The Bible says that Joseph and Mary went with their pigeons to sacrifice for the Son of God that had come into the world. What an oxymoron. What an incredible juxtaposition. came with nothing, into a family that had almost nothing. And within months he would be fleeing for his life to North Africa where most refugees are found. And so the Son of God appeared. What was God saying about our materialistic obsession? Here in Jesus was to be alive, never more fully alive. Is that true or not? Are you more alive than Jesus was when he lived on earth? Are you more fully present than Jesus was in every moment? A life never more influential, a life never more significant, and for most of it, it seemed, he had not a penny to his name. The manger was a sign of all that was to come. Even the foxes have got a hole and the birds have got some nests, but the Son of Man has no place, that should say, to lay his head. 
yet a life never more fully lived. Wouldn't you agree? I want that life, don't you? So do you need it? Do you need all this stuff to be fully alive? Do you need it all to be the person that God wants you to be? We so bought into the culture that it feels like we do. Do you need all these things that steal our allegiance? Everything around that promises to satisfy but leaves us craving for more. Just a little bit more. Do you need it? Any of it, really? Probably not. Probably not. So what did God give Jesus? No image to hide behind. No wealth to get him going. You know, no lump sum from the grandparents for the future. No sort of uh, government handout. What are you going to do with that tax what's-it thingy that you get from Gordon Brown? The only thing God gave Jesus was a mum and a dad. But not just any mum and dad. A mum and dad that had one single overriding characteristic that was in them both. Their simple trust. Their simple trust. You see, when God said to Abraham he'd be a father in his old age, he just laughed out loud. When God said the same to Sarah, uh, Abraham's wife, she laughed too. When God told Moses he'd lead the people out of Egypt, he said, I can't. And when the Israelites faced a challenge in the desert, they decided God had deserted them. And when Gideon was asked to be a judge and leader, he said, I can't do that, I'm a nobody, you've got the wrong person. When Zechariah was told about John the Baptist, he didn't believe it and had to be quiet for a number of months. But when Mary was told that she would give birth to the Son from heaven, she said now so famously, I'm the Lord's servant. I'll trust God for that. I'm in. May it be to me, as you have said. You see, for a young unmarried girl to be discovered as pregnant in that culture was an utter disaster. Her only hope was for the child's father to marry her. But in those days, what father would? The scandal, the shame of it all. It was to risk the rejection of her whole family to say that she was pregnant. Many people in Mary's position would be forced onto the streets to live a life of prostitution, simply to survive. And alongside all of that, Mary had this story about being overshadowed by the Holy Ghost. She'd be thought as mad as well. Would you have done it? Would you have said yes? She had a future mapped out, her wedding soon. Her marriage was not just about love, it was her future, her security. Should she risk it all? on the whim of an angel. Was it an angel? It had gone in a moment. What did she know? Did she imagine it? Did she have too much coffee? Was the pizza bad the night before? Was she seeing things? An angel, just for a moment. Weird story. I'm doubting it all, Lord. Was it true? What should I do? Would you have risked it all on a whim? Something inside. Because she knew her God. Something inside. She knew. I'm in. I'll do that. Everything's at stake here. But if that's what God's going to do, I'll, I'll go with that. But then just as much a hero, but hardly mentioned, is Joseph. Joseph too found himself in this incredibly difficult position. 
It's hardly surprising that he was considering to divorce her. That's what society, polite, moral society, expected him to do. That was the done thing, the right thing in everybody's eyes. His parents and friends would have expected him to do it, and maybe to make it worse, Mary's parents and friends would have expected him to do it too. But God intervened. It wasn't even a visit from an angel this time, as Mary had. It was no choir of angels, as the shepherds were able to see, or a brightly lit star that guided the wise men. No, more subtle, even less tangible. It was a dream. Was God speaking to me in that dream? Did I really? Was that a bad pizza too, the same pizza Mary had? What, what, what is this? Was I just restless? But something inside, he knew God was saying something. He knew it was from God. I want to say, do you walk that closely with God that you would have got those messages? I'm not sure I would have, and that scares me. But he knew. So it says, just so matter-of-factly, hey, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. What an understatement to all the humongous social problems there was for him to take Mary home as his wife. Joseph, spiritually alert. Yeah, I'll trust too. I'll trust. Whatever God says, that's good. I'm ready. So it was that same simple trust. That's what God gave his son Jesus. A mom and a dad who knew what it was to trust God in a simple but deeply profound, life-changing kind of way. And so if the manger is a sign of the futility of our image-based culture, and if it's a mark of the poverty that is our wealth, it's a sign to all that what matters most is simple trust. That's what makes the difference. That's what triumphs. Whoever you are, whatever your circumstance, whatever situation, simple trust. Let's pray.